Now I'd like to turn your attention to our study for today. It comes from the book of Ephesians. For the past 18 Sunday morning lessons, we have studied from the book of Ephesians, and this one will conclude our study of this great book. When Paul wrote the Ephesians from that Roman prison, he emphasized the church of Christ, the fact that it was his body, and all of the blessings that are a part of it, and the kind of behavior that one who is a member of it ought to have. There's so many wonderful figures that Paul used to try to describe the Lord's church. As we studied last Sunday morning from Ephesians 5, he viewed the church as the beautiful bride of Christ. This morning, we're going to talk about the church of Christ at war. At war. As we begin, it seems rather contradictory to many of us who emphasize and discuss a Savior who came to bring peace. We'll see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 17. And for those of us who are a part of that body, who are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, chapter 4, verse 3, and then to talk about being at war. Have you ever thought about the great prince of peace? The one who is the leader of our body, the church, the head of it, has told us that he is the prince of peace and yet at war. Listen, if you will, to chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are near and to those who were afar off. Or to those who were afar off and to those who are near. And then chapter 4, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do I reconcile those things? Well, I have to understand that not everyone recognizes the nature of the battle. When Paul was writing the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he was addressing many people who were making false accusations against him. Some had the idea that the Christian warfare was that of a physical nature. And he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. For pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity for the obedience or to the obedience of Christ. We need to understand that Paul said, even though we are warring, it is not a physical battle. You may know of what occurred in the Middle East many years ago. Those who were the followers of Muhammad came into the Middle East and they, by means of the sword told people, either you will convert to Islam or you will die. There were many in Europe who took that as an affront and an assault 
And thus began the Crusades with an attempt to try to resolve these things with the power of the sword. Paul would say that's not the nature of our conflict. But the Lord's church is at war. But it's at war with the devil. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter writes, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You and I are at war as a member of the church. We're not at war with one another. We're not at war with God. We are at war with the devil. Paul, being under constant Roman guard, would have had a daily a soldier standing by him in full battle array. That was the way the Romans would have conducted themselves. And Paul would have seen that daily. And now as he writes the Ephesians with the emphasis on the battle that we face, we'll use a series of battle armament to describe the Christian conflict. Our study will conclude with battle training. We want to look at two simple things in our lesson this morning. In verses 10 through 12, we're going to look at the nature of the conflict. I think it's important to read verses 10 through 12 and absorb what Paul is saying here. And then number two, to look at the necessary armament as he describes this Christian soldier. In fact, I thought it was interesting the passage or the song that we will sing for the invitation just on the opposite page is number 22. I think it's what's the number for the invitation. But right across the page, wherever you've got it marked, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. That is certainly the idea of what we're going to discuss. Let's look now at verses 10 through 12. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against a spiritual host of wickedness. In heavenly places. The very beginning of this section, the word finally. Whenever I use the word finally, everybody reaches for the songbook. They think that's the indication of the conclusion. The lesson's about over. No, that's not the way Paul uses finally here. The word finally, in this in indication, in this passage, is saying this completes. What I am saying to you, it's as if it is a part of the whole. This is not a signal of the end. This is a signal of completion, fullness, if you will. And then I want to draw attention. In fact, this is a part of it. I think if you don't get the rest of it, this might would be very helpful for each of us. When he says, be strong... That's in a very unique form in the grammatical language here. It is in the passive voice. And let me explain uh, active versus passive. If you say, he hit the ball, I hit the ball, 
That's active. The subject's doing the action. If you say he was hit by the ball, that's passive. Something happened to the subject. When he says be strong here, it's in the imperative mood. That's a command. But it's in the passive voice. Perhaps we would say, allow yourselves to be strong. And you say, well, what's the significance of that? Why would he use that? It's because the strength does not come from us. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 12, Paul says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, putting me into the men, counting me faithful, putting me into the ministry, that he has enabled me to do the job that he has given me to do. Or 2 Timothy 4 verse 17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Paul said, God strengthened me. What this passage is suggesting, as Paul goes on to say, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. One of the greatest problems I believe that many of us face in serving the Lord is we expect to do it all ourselves. As if the Lord somehow looks and says, okay, you've got to reach down by your bootstraps, pull yourselves up, make yourself strong, and be able to fight the Christian battle by yourself. And if you're thinking that, you have missed a very important part of this passage. And thus he says, put on the whole armor of God. This is also an imperative. That means that I don't have a choice as to whether I need to suit up with my armor. I can't be fearful and I can't be afraid. One dare not engage the enemy without being fully armed. You know, sometimes we're not confident enough we don't believe we can do what God has told us to do because we don't realize He's with us. And sometimes we're overconfident and we think, I can do it all by myself. And if you don't put on the whole Christian armor, you're saying, I don't need it. I've seen people hop on motorcycles and take off with no helmet on. And I'm thinking, how crazy is that? Sometimes people think they can engage the devil in warfare without the Christian armor. They may be overconfident in their own ability. It is the armor that has been devised by God. He knows me completely. He knows all of us completely. He knows our spiritual vulnerabilities. That's the reason why we need a breastplate of righteousness. That's the reason why we need a helmet of salvation that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What are his wiles? The original word there is methodia, from which we get our English word method. It describes his trickery, his schemes, his strategies, if you will. 
They may say, what was the perpetrator's M.O.? That is, method of operation. What is the devil's method of operation? You know, the Bible quite often will speak about his devices. We're not ignorant of his devices. Paul would write the Corinthians. Well, in chapter 4, verse 14, he says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The word craftiness there is the same word here for wiles. You, you, just, you try to work it out so you can trick somebody. The devil has fakes, imposters. Now I want you to notice the nature of the conflict here also is that it is not against flesh and blood. Some of the times we do misunderstand what is involved here. In 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. He's explaining eternity. I'm not going to go to heaven in this physical body. This physical body is corruptible. So when Paul is saying that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, he's trying to tell you that it's not your neighbor and it's not your friend that is your enemy. It's the devil that's the enemy. He goes on to say against principalities. That's the word for rulers. Against authorities or powers. Against world rulers literally the monarchs of the world, against the darkness of this age. About whom is he referring? Listen to Ephesians 5 and verse 8 and then 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. In chapter 4, verse 4, 2 Corinthians, Paul said, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of Christ, who is an image of God, should shine upon them. The devil is the God of this age. It is the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. That is the demonic realm, Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. This is a supernatural conflict. Do you understand that? It is a conflict between God on this side and the devil on this side. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then to look at 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says, In the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to... Deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. There are going to be people who will believe what they will say. Now, while I recognize 
that this is a conflict between God and a conflict between the devil, we have to realize that this is carried out by those of us here on earth. When Paul was writing the Corinthians in chapter 11, in verses 13 through 15, he's describing people who are fulfilling all this... um, bad things in the church at Corinth. And he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Now notice carefully. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers, that's the devil's ministers, transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. We have among us people who are serving the devil. Do you remember what Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, after he'd said that God had made them elders? He said, from among your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. You see, the devil is involved in this conflict. And that's the nature of it. But now the necessary armament is found in verses 13 through 20. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication with the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that my utterance or that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. Take up the whole armor of God. There's only one way to be prepared, and that's take the whole armor. The two words, hold armor, are one original word, panoplia. Sometimes you'll notice when we sing the songs, the panoply of God, that's the word right there. Whole armor, all of the armor that God has given us. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. What does he mean to say, and having done all? That means that you and I have to put some effort out on our part. Will God strengthen us? Will God be with us? Will God provide the armor? Yes, He will, but am I going to put it on? Once He gives me the strength, once He gives me the armor, will I stand there with that armor? Or will I shrink away? Don't run when the heat of the battle comes. Stand in there and fight. Now many of these figures are borrowed from Isaiah's picture of the Messiah. 
Christ coming. In fact, I really wish I had a lot more time to explore each of these with you as they are pictured in the Old Testament. But let me run through them very quickly. Gird your waist with truth. To gird in the Bible is to put something around you like a belt. In fact, we would call it a belt. And this is what a sword would be attached to. Your scabbard that you would put your sword in. Or perhaps your quiver in which your arrows would be placed. We'll see that in the Old Testament. But I want to notice with you before we go there that there is no definite article here in front of the truth. And it doesn't say the truth. It just says truth. Which is the truthfulness that Isaiah will speak of. In 1 Samuel chapter 25 verse 13, Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. That's the idea of putting that belt on with that scabbard on there. Isaiah 11.5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Talking about the Messiah. Then put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a solid piece of armor usually made with little uh, uh, scales like. Sometimes it was a, uh, chains that were woven together. But it was for the purpose of protecting the vital organs, the heart, the lungs. Righteousness is what protects us from the false charges of the enemy. Listen in Isaiah 59 verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate talking about the Messiah. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. He's saying, who's going to harm you if you're doing what's right? Righteousness. 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now frequently we don't consider footwear as armor. But it is a necessary item of the soldier. You've heard the phrase, boots on and ready to fight. But the idea of here feet being shod is so you can run fast, quickly, maneuver. You don't have to worry about stepping on something and hurting your foot. In Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 10. The shield of faith. When you study the background of the Roman armament, they had two kinds of shields. They had a small disc shape, round shape, had a piece of leather on it. And when they would go into battle, they would take their sword in their right hand and their little round disc shield in their left hand, and they would use that to block 
the blows of another man who was wielding a sword. That's not the word that is used here. They also carried a very large shield. In fact, large enough that they could stand behind it. And I don't know if you've ever seen some of the movies that have portrayed it. But here's the other army that's drawn back and they have their arrows and they're going to shoot. And the other soldiers will crowd together and they will take their shields as large as they are and then the arrows will just hit that shield and protect them. That large shield. Well, here he's talking about the shield of faith. And here he does use the definite article, talking about the faith, the revealed message. And that's the only thing that we can use to deflect the arrows of the devil. Listen to Proverbs 35. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Psalms 5:12. You, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him with a shield. And the helmet of salvation, again quoting Isaiah 59, 17, and the helmet of salvation on his head. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the only weapon of offense. Hebrews 4, 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, it is incredibly powerful. And then as you summarize what Paul is saying here, he says, praying always, being watchful, that I may open my mouth to speak boldly. You see, it's not only after you've got the armor on. It's not only after you have, you're standing here ready to fight. Paul says, I want you to pray for me that when I engage the enemy, that I will do it as I ought to, to be bold. No place for being timid in the army of the Lord. Let me summarize now. What a way to end a letter. Be strong in your battle against the devil. You think about that letter that they had and the very last thing Paul is punctuating. Fight that Christian fight. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you have been, were also called. Or in 2 Timothy 4.7 I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. See Paul says I have been a battle-tested soldier. We know who wins. You study the book of Revelation and the picture that is given there after the great battle, God reigns in heaven. Satan is consigned to the great abyss. God wins. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? The song asks, if you've not yet become a child of God, you're not yet a part of this great body of believers, the family of God, the army of our Lord, 
If you need to be obedient to the gospel, we encourage you to do that this morning through faith, repentance, confession, and being baptized. Everything's ready for you. We're just waiting on you. The Lord's waiting on you. And if you're a child of God who needs to come home, we stand ready to assist. Would you come as we stand and sing?